The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have, once again, one of my favorite guests, Darcy Winslow. Darcy is the founder of DSW Collective, Design for a Sustainable World. She's a pioneer and active practitioner of sustainability frameworks, has been for years and years, long before it was she-she. And uh, she had a long-time career with Nike Corporation as a leader who truly left a legacy of sustainability in action. So, Darcy, welcome to Leading Conversations again. Thanks, Cheryl. It's great to be back. It is so good to have you here. So tell us, where are you today? I am in beautiful but very windy Crestone, Colorado. Ah. In the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. In the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Tell people where that is. Many people are not familiar. Uh, It's about four hours due south of Denver, and the Sangre de Cristo range actually extends down into New Mexico, so... If you're familiar with Taos, New Mexico, it's about two hours due north oh, okay. of Taos. Oh, beautiful part of the country. It is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. So um, it sounds like that would be a place you would be able to get away from it all. And that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so you have, I know, you have a very busy schedule. You are very committed to your work. Um, you have clients all around the world, and so let's before we get into around the sustainability issue of the planet, let's talk about sustainability of the person. Mm. How do you um, manage to keep yourself going, keep yourself fresh, not frazzled? Because you know you travel around the world, you are you are in front of people a lot and doing very important work. So talk to us. Give, give the listeners a little bit of hint as to how you keep yourself centered and together. Mm. That's a great question. It's a, it's a uh, very active journey to do that. I, I am a committed and lifelong athlete, and I think that is one of the things that has helped me both in my personal life but also in professional life. And I love to try new sports. I am game for just about anything. But, you know, when I travel, one of the first things I try to do is get out and explore the area, get a sense of the place on foot. I'm a runner. I'm an avid runner. Mm -hmm. And so that has always helped. And actually, uh, I ran down to where I am currently sitting right now, Hmm. ran about two and a half miles to come down here 
but it's just a great way to kind of clear the brain. Uh, it's great thinking time. Some of my best ideas, or I think best ideas, come to me while I'm out um, running or riding or kayaking. So that is really one of my uh, greatest ways to, to stay centered. Hmm. So I love that, getting connected to places like putting your foot on the ground, really connecting to the earth, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. And when you go to visit a new place and you're traveling by car, you just see things whiz by. But when you're on foot or on bike, you can really get a sense for the community, um, the land, the, the quality of the air, everything. So it's mm-hmm. just every sense is alive when I'm, when I'm on foot. Well, I wonder then if this isn't part of what got you connected to that sense that sustainability is vital to our planet. uh, To me, sustainability is really the capacity to endure. And if you think about that in all its uh, complexity, you know, how does a person endure whatever they're up against. How does a plant, how does a community, how does an organization endure? And I think we're seeing all of those things stressed right now for many, many reasons, many obvious and some not so obvious reasons. But to really unpack that and to understand how the systems around whatever that entity are changing and how the ability to endure also requires adaptation and shifting. Mm. You know, I um, as I hear you, I think about um, how easy it is for us as societies around the world to get so caught up in the doing of our lives, in the creating of things, in the um, making it, quote-unquote, happen, whatever it is, that um, we literally can't touch the energy of the earth. Sometimes we can't even touch the energy of ourselves, which is the first connection we have to nature, right, ourselves. And so, you know, you have been working with leaders around this whole idea of sustainability, um, and you've done some pretty uh, amazing things, which we'll get into in a minute. How do you get leaders to first connect to the importance of nature and self? Well, you said it before they can even connect to nature. They do have to connect with themselves, and sometimes that is a very simple uh, bridge to cross. Other times it's very, very difficult and, you know, because of whatever has happened in their life or their, you know, whatever blockage might be there. But the introduction to nature, and again, we will get into this, but to see people come alive because of an experience that they've had in nature, that, that connection to the natural world, it's one thing to be standing in a forest, but to connect to everything that's around you within that forest, Mm. it's a much deeper connection. And so, you know, as with uh, the trip to Antarctica or other places around the world, to help people have that experience and then to connect that back to, you know, what their impact, both positive and negative, can and should be um, and how they can be more 
active versus passive hmm. in their impact on the world. Mm, I like that, being more active versus passive. What, how would you describe it? What would be different if they are being active versus passive? Hmm. Wow, that can happen in so many ways. Um, what's, what's an example? Well, let's see. I'm trying to think of something that has happened very recently. Um, well, going back to the Antarctica mm-hmm. experience, I was sitting one day with uh, an Australian Aborigine, one of the first two to ever step foot on the continent, and he and I were sitting on you know, uh, a piece of ice, literally just having a conversation, and he said to me, and he's 20, 21 years old, he said, you know, I've always heard about climate change and global warming because they live in Australia, mm. in the hole in the ozone. He grew up with that. But he said, I never understood what it really meant until I got to the Antarctica and I saw the beauty of nature around us. When you're in your own space, you take so much for granted. And so getting people out of what's familiar into an unfamiliar place and to start to point out how this is connected to this and to this and to this and to go just a little bit deeper than they typically do, you can see the light bulb go off and then that is your opening to really go deep with them. That's beautiful, getting them out of what's familiar. Um, that sure makes sense. Now, for our listeners who aren't familiar with your Antarctica trips, um, give us a synopsis. Well, let's see, about not quite two years ago, I was contacted by uh, the former head of British Petroleum's Alternative Energy Division Mm -hmm. to be a sustainability leader and part of their leadership team to take 50 global youth leaders, emerging student leaders from around the world to Antarctica to truly experience it in the context of climate change leadership and being able to come back into the real world and activating their individual networks to become uh, much more active Mm. in climate change uh, and understanding the actions that they could take at home, in their community, in their organization or place of work, Mm. or their academic world. And so that was my first foray uh, to the Antarctic, and we talked about that last year. Coming off of that experience, the organization that uh, runs these trips, 2041, led by Robert Swan, the, I would say, this generation's greatest polar explorer, and his business partner, Ann Kershaw, they contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in being a sustainability leader and expert and um, expeditioner with them again on this March this past March expedition, and of course I said yes. Um, <laughs> so we can talk about you know all the ways it was the same, different, but right. the common theme is activating emerging and existing leaders around climate change by virtue of having this unbelievable experience in one of the most beautiful, pristine places in the world. So this previous trip, your first trip we talked about last year was with emerging leaders, young youth, youth leaders. This trip was, if I understand it right, were leaders that um, 
had had a lot of experience in leadership. Is that correct? Well, it was actually more one of the more traditional um, 2041 expeditions that they run. Mm-hmm. They're called IAE, Inspire Antarctic Expeditions. And their intention is to have a mix of existing business and organizational leaders okay. and emerging leaders so okay. that you've got that intergenerational conversation dialogue taking place. So this is what uh, this past expedition was. So tell us how, um, if you could could sum your experience up in a couple of sentences, what would it be? Change is happening, and it's happening quicker than even scientists have predicted in the past. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the leadership that I have experienced down there is also emerging much more quickly um, than I think I, I would have expected. Mm-hmm. And the urgency with and the time frame with which within which we need to really activate leadership and take action, that became so crystal clear on this trip by virtue of some of the uh, climate data and the outcome of Copenhagen in December, and I can share some of that. So taking that into the conversation and making it crystal clear that we're not talking about future generations taking action, we have a window of less than 10 years to really make a difference and to choose the path that we want to take. Hmm. So Robert Swan's date, uh, his target of 2041, where we will, not, we will be using no fossil fuels, is that the target? Well, 2041 actually is an extension of the Antarctic Treaty, which was signed in 1959. So they, the, the Antarctic Treaty was celebrated in November of 2009, and there was an expedition to Antarctica to actually celebrate that. But 2041 was born out of the extension of the Antarctic Treaty uh, that was signed in 1991 that ensured the uh, protection mm-hmm. of the environment in Antarctica to ensure that there was no mining or drilling Mm -hmm. for the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. And while the Antarctic Treaty, which again was signed in 1959, can never be overridden, the extension, the Environmental Protection Extension, uh, can be, will be up for review in 2041. So Robert's intention is to ensure that there will never be mining and drilling again in the Antarctic. And one of his missions is to show that you can operate in the Antarctic, some of the worst, harshest weather in the world, but you can operate without the use of fossil fuels. And his point is, if you can do it in Antarctica, you can do it back in the real world. So you guys have boats down there, right? You have boats to get yourself there. We take a Russian research vessel. It's called the Academic Iofi, and it has a sister research ship. But we set sail from Ushuaia, Argentina, after spending about a day and a half in Ushuaia, getting to know each other, really setting up the objectives of the expedition, because this is not a pleasure cruise. 
And then we set sail uh, down the Beagle Channel and out into the Drake Passage. And it's about a two-and-a-half-day crossing to actually reach the peninsula, the Antarctic Peninsula. And so my question is, you set sail, and there must be um, there must be fuel on board that boat, right, in case there are no winds? Absolutely. It is not a sailboat. It is a 117-meter research vessel, so we are using fossil fuel, and that's a great point because part of the responsibility of being part of these expeditions is to ensure that you offset your carbon footprint to actually fly from wherever you are in the world to Ushuaia, Argentina, and then the trip uh, itself and back. And so we actually help everyone calculate their carbon footprint so that once they return home, they know exactly how much carbon they need to offset. Mm. And that is their starting point. That is action plan number one. Much like um, the young leader you spoke with who said he really didn't understand the whole idea of climate change and the issues, um, I believe that today there are many people who don't truly understand the idea of carbon footprint. And um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back after this break. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. 
Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Escobedo, and today we have Darcy Winslow with us the founder of the DSW Collective, and a pioneer and active practitioner of sustainability frameworks. So, Darcy, before we went to break, um, you were talking a lot about um, are your Antarctic expeditions and the philosophy behind them. And you mentioned the idea of offsetting carbon footprint. Just describe briefly what that is so people really have an understanding. Sure. And just very simply... It's looking at your lifestyle and your work and understanding what the carbon contribution is based on how you live. And I'll give you an example by virtue of using my own personal carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've, I've calculated that for my lifestyle, and I've also calculated the carbon footprint for my business, DSW Collective. And we certainly uh, have done that for years at Nike as well. And some of the the primary contributors uh, on a personal level to your footprint will be your home uh, and your energy sources, whether you use coal or oil or natural gas or solar or wind. Those all have a footprint in terms of how much carbon dioxide they actually emit into the atmosphere. And travel is another big footprint uh, based on how many miles you fly or drive, the type of vehicle, uh, whether or not you take mass transit. Um, again, they all have a particular contribution to your footprint. Your food choices, people often overlook this, but your food choices have a huge contribution to your footprint. So if you eat... Um, a diet that is heavy in red meat, most of that meat uh, typically comes from a long distance, and the cattle industry um, is very carbon-intensive. And so choosing a vegetarian lifestyle uh, is an obvious choice to lower your footprint, organic foods, but mostly local, buying local, is one of the best ways to lower your footprint. Also, the purchases that you make, those all add up to what your carbon footprint is. And I, just to put it in context, um, when I looked at my personal carbon footprint, 
it added up to if every person in the world lived like I did, and this is not something I'm proud of, but I'll share it, uh, because it was a learning point for me, mm. it would take over five Earths to sustain the lifestyle of the population that's currently on Earth. So when I looked at that, I looked at where my greatest contributions uh, to my carbon footprint were and travel. As you said, I do travel quite a bit. And so I'm now working with a company called Three Degrees that helps me offset my entire carbon footprint, especially for my business. Um, so for last year, my uh, even though it's a very small business, my carbon footprint was about 60 tons of CO2 per year. And I now completely offset that. So the first point is just to understand what your footprint is. And there are many sites you can Google, you know, carbon footprint, and it'll allow you to input your own data. And you can just get a sense for what your starting point is. And from there, then you must start to make choices. So, so just so I'm clear, so... This company is helping you, and you say you have completely you you're, you've completely erased your carbon footprint. My my business is carbon neutral. Carbon so, neutral. Carbon neutral, and <clears throat> that is uh, an emerging goal for many many large corporations to become carbon neutral by mm-hmm. 2020 or 2050, um, or better, to where they generate more energy than they actually use. So. It's really starting to shift. I think we need to accelerate it even more, but people are really waking up. And, again, it's part of the purpose of the Antarctic expedition is to, uh, if people are not already aware of it, to introduce them to that concept. Mm -hmm. If they are already active, they're now in dialogue with other business leaders or student leaders or academic leaders from around the world and to share how they've attacked um, or address their own uh, issues around climate change and, and carbon. So this is um, what you refer to as creating a green life cycle, right? Uh, a green life cycle is absolutely an important component of sustainability. It's one of those great examples of it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Um, because we really have to embrace the social aspect of sustainability. And many would argue that that's actually the starting point, that if we look at social well-being and extend out from there into the economic and the environmental aspect of sustainability, that that's a better starting point than what we typically do is start from the business or the economic perspective, then add in the environmental piece, again, very important, and then extend to the social. So we're starting to flip that and say, what if we started with social well-being? What does that look like? And what would have to shift in order for us to realize that that dream? That's um, That feels really big and daunting, social well-being. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I think of, you know, no wonder we start with, you know, let's just look at, and, you know, what the business can do. Oh, should they recycle paper? Oh, okay, you know, everybody's figured that one out. And, you know, but is that really um, helping the the planet, you know? And I, I wonder about that. Are there things that, that we as a planet, 
as people on this planet have been doing for years in the name of being green that um, aren't necessarily making a huge difference around the carbon footprint. Yes, um, it's a great point, and I think what we are starting to see are shifts in what we call what we would call compliance. So, you know, years ago, if you were recycling, you know, glass or cans or paper, you were seen as, you know, on the fringe environmentalist. Mm -hmm. I think now it's becoming just a standard way of operating, and in many places, it's now become a point of compliance that Mm -hmm. you must recycle, you must do these types of things. So we're, I, we're seeing the level of compliance on many different levels start to shift, in which case it, it's forcing organizations to look at what they're doing and to say, is that good enough? And there's actually a framework uh, that, that I use quite often, and it's the five gears of sustainability. And if you look at, with one being, you're just barely compliant. You know, anything environmental or social or philanthropic, you really have no use for that. The second level uh, is really about what you were just talking about, Cheryl. It's those random acts of kindness, the printing on two sides of the paper, recycling, or even composting. Mm -hmm. Those, Those are good things, but they're by far not adequate. And we're starting to see more and more companies and communities, uh, and this is a real point of hope for me, to see communities really start to evolve into a different future, to envision a different design of communities, lifestyle, Hmm. how those communities actually interact and collaborate for a cause or an outcome that's greater than uh, what they could achieve individually. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I think, you know, companies will start to self-identify that recycling is not enough right. and, and that much more is at stake. Right, right. Um, and that's not to say that, that many companies have not already begun that because they have, and much of it is behind the scenes. Um, you know, even companies like... Um, I'm going to get them mixed up, Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola. Sorry, Coke and Pepsi, can't remember which one you are. Um, but um, it, one of them, and maybe both of them by now, but one of them um, really took this seriously and started looking at, um, you know, how much water are they using in their product, and they realized that was not enough. They needed to look at how much water they actually consumed um, from marketing um, the product, or to creating the product, to um, putting the product on a shelf, and um, you know, so it included the delivery. It included the, um, you know, what happens on the ships that it gets sent to all across the oceans, and et cetera, et cetera. And they looked at all elements of it, um, and then made some choices around how they would create that product and how they would offset that use, and. Um, you know, I mean, and that's happening behind the scenes. The public isn't very aware of things like that, so I'm sure there's more that's going on, and there's more we can all do. And but I love what you said about companies and communities envisioning a different future because it seems like one of the 
um, wonderful byproducts of this process is going to be that we as individuals on this planet are going to realize in a big way how much we need each other. Absolutely, and that could not be more true when you start to look at the food chain Mm. and just how taxed um, it has become. I won't say is becoming, it has become. Mm -hmm. And you can look at population, you can look at lifestyle, you can look at diet, but you can also look at the impact that we've had on the land that we grow our food Mm -hmm. and how that is changing so dramatically. Um, Bill McKibben just wrote a new book. It's called Earth, and it's spelled E-A-A-R-T-H. And it is absolutely, so Bill, way to go. This is absolutely one of the best books I've read. It's frightening because it is so factually accurate, but he talks in the end, uh, especially about food, how much is going to have to change and that we can no longer look at this one very critical ecosystem. We can't look at, at, at it as a global uh, food ecosystem or as a national or even at the state, but we have to get down to the city, the community, and even the mm-hmm. neighborhood level and mm-hmm. to rethink how we will feed ourselves in the future. And this is changing so dramatically. And so your example of Coke and Pepsi, Coke or Pepsi, um, I think I know the answer there, uh, they are so water dependent and they really have to look at the communities in which they uh, draw from in order to make their product. And they've got some really hard choices that they'll have to make in the future because water is uh, probably even more challenged right now than the food system. Well, you know, that takes us into a whole other um, conversation around water conservation and um, um, water usage and um, um, fights that go, not fights so much, but um, competition for water rights, et cetera. And um, that in itself is a whole area that I think the public is not, very aware of. You know, we hear, we hear about it every once in a while, um, but there isn't a sense that we may run out of fresh water. We are running out of fresh water. You know, it's interesting, um, being here in Colorado, I was made aware that the legal community um, is very focused on water. In fact, there are more lawyers, water lawyers in Colorado than any other type of lawyer. Really? Because of water rights and where we draw water from. And they actually estimate that there are more battles, wars over water right now, although they're considered more local skirmishes than what we're seeing Mm -hmm. on a global scale. Mm -hmm. Those have been happening for years. Mm -hmm. And the, the fact that we're seeing more and more climate refugees are, in fact, primarily based on water, the lack of water, um, drinkable water, but also rising sea levels. So climate refugees are a reality of today, and they estimate that uh, we will have hundreds of millions of climate refugees within the next couple of decades. And where will they 
retreat to? That's a bit where where there's water. <laughs> okay. Where do you know where um, most of them are moving from right now? Well, it's it's mostly happening in the developing world. But if you look at the fact that twenty to twenty five percent of the world's population lives in low lying coastal areas, you can quickly do the math to see how many people are at risk with the rising seas. And if you look in the United States, um, again, Florida will be um, one of the highest risks. Uh, but it, then if you go up the eastern seaboard, you know, even Washington, D.C., New York, um, all of these areas in the, the coming decades, and again, you know, one of the points that Bill McKibben makes in his book is we always talk about our children and our children's children and he says, no, it is now. It is our generation. So we're seeing these um, effects happening, but, but what we're not doing is connecting the dots mm. and understanding that everything is connected. As Donella Meadows said, everything in the world is connected to everything else. And part of working in sustainability really forces you to think systemically and to understand uh, the actions downstream and upstream, right? Um, you know, the, the impact that they will have on all these things that we're talking about. Mm. So water is very, very critical. Well, we're going to connect more of those dots when we come right back. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with Darcy Winslow today. So, Darcy, in our last segment, you were really helping us understand um, how to connect the dots, the, the knowledge that we are all connected, everybody on the planet and everything of the planet is all connected together. Um, let's connect some more of those dots. Uh, you have had an experience um, for the last couple of years with uh, the company BP, British Petroleum, um, and you've had that experience with their alternative energies division, um, and that is, is um, the trips and the expeditions to the Antarctica, where the intention is to um, breed leadership that has such deep awareness and connection to the earth that they can do nothing else but see that through this lens with every one of their actions that they are affecting the earth. And talk to us a little bit about um, what you came away with from this previous, this group of, last group of leaders you were with. Um, you said there was mixed generation. Did you see that um, each one of these individuals, because of their generational perspective, did they have a um, different experience from one another? Oh, yes, they did. And I'll try and um, bring some of the personalities and some mm. of the issues and some of the dialogue out. Um, but, but first, I want to go back to the first expedition that I went on to Antarctica. That was sponsored by BP. Yeah. This last one, BP had uh, no no hand in it. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so it was one of, like I said, a more traditional Inspire Antarctic expedition right, that 2041 right. runs. And the people that were involved in this uh, were generally self-selected. So they either sponsored themselves, and again, this is uh, a fairly expensive undertaking, so it's between twenty and $25,000. So people who were very interested in becoming part of this, they set out to raise funds. And, and actually, there was one uh, young woman from Scotland who was part of um, a contest at her university. And the winners won a spot on this expedition. She came in second. But she was so inspired, and she so wanted to join this expedition, she raised the $25,000 on her own. 
Wow. So students um, could also join partially on scholarship. Mm-hmm. So 2041 would help them raise the first 15000 and then mm-hmm. they would raise the 10000 on their own. We had corporate um, representation from Shell, China Light and Power, VTOL, uh, which is one of the, the largest oil trading companies, which I thought was really interesting. So here you have three fossil fuel-based mm-hmm. companies sending representatives on this, but it was all in the spirit of we need to start shifting our business model. We need to start mm-hmm. shifting our reliance on fossil fuel. And I'll tell the stories about the China Light and Power in just a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also had uh, some nonprofits. So we had a green shake from the United Arab Emirates who was there to really learn about issues of climate change, but also peace and collaboration were his primary uh, goals. We had folks from the Prince's Trust in the U.K. Um, And like I said, we had two Australian Aborigines who were chosen so that they could go back and inspire that population in Australia. So Mm -hmm. direct connection into the Aboriginal uh, population in Australia. Um, we also had a really interesting participant, um, the Australian Idol, so the analogy to American Idol. Oh. <laughs> this was the Australian Idol runner-up. Oh, wow. And she, along with the two Australian Aborigines, uh, were joined by a film group, a documentary group, oh. to capture this experience and also the experience of many of the other young leaders that were with us. And so that documentary will probably air late this summer, early fall. And it's just it was wonderful to see them engaged and asking really deep personal questions. You know, what does this mean to you? What will you do with this experience? Well, you know, it's a good example of how celebrity can be utilized to spread a message, as we know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, what, uh, go ahead. I was going to ask about China Light and Power. You said you wanted to tell us about that. Yes, so China Light and Power sent a team of five young uh, business folks, and they were probably late 20s, early 30s. And they joined for a very specific reason. Um, first of all, to be part of the expedition. But our very last port of call on the Antarctic Peninsula was at King George Island, which is where Robert Swan has erected the E-Base, which is yeah. the environmental um, base that is run completely on solar and wind power. And I think I may have mentioned this last year, but as we were crossing the Drake Passage, we encountered a huge, epic storm. And that storm took out the wind turbines and the solar panels at eBase. And so it's been uh, just limping along this past year. So China Light and Power, this team, we dropped them off at eBase on our very last day with new solar panels, new wind turbines, and everything they needed to repair uh, the oh. e-base, oh. and it was it was really um, it was really kind of heart wrenching because 
we dropped them off at the base, we, you know, said our goodbyes, and we left them there for what we thought was going to be a five-day stint as we crossed back over the Drake Passage, and then a plane would come in and pick them up. Well, the weather turned, and they ended up being at this very small e-base for about 12 days, but it was such a transformational experience for this small team of business leaders they have since gone back to their CEO and their country presidents in China, Hong Kong, Singapore, and India and have rallied them to take an even greater and more proactive stance in shifting their business model to alternative energy. And they're in the process right now of selling that in all the way up to their CEO, and he has asked them to come back and to be as aggressive as possible. I want all your ideas. Mm. And they were in a very different place before this team of five came back. So you can see the magnitude of shift that can happen, and China Light and Power is one of the largest energy providers in Southeast Asia. That is inspiring, you know. And um, and there, I think there's a tendency to say, well, you know, how great. You know, they're going to go back and they're going to... Um, you know, get a few people inspired, but are they really going to do anything? I mean, after all, they are China light and power, and China doesn't seem to have um, much interest in the climate and cleaning things up, except when they're going to be, um, except when a lot of cameras are on them. You know, there is that that sense. And so what do you think... Um, is happening now that is different for China? Oh, that's a great question, a very complex question as well. And while I'm not an expert on China, um, I do believe that there are pockets within the government, within academia, within communities, where they are seeing the impact of climate change, of consumption, lifestyle, uh, you know, as they come up the chain, uh, that maybe following the United States lifestyle is not the path forward. Mm-hmm. And I think these are few and far between. But if you look at China, and I apologize for this analogy in advance, but if you look at China uh, as our Walmart, mm-hmm. you know, if they make small shifts, because of their size, they actually right. have a very large impact. Right, right. And so I think if we look at China Light and Power, they can be a leader that can start to shift other businesses mm-hmm. within Southeast Asia. And, and again, they also um, um, are in India, Singapore. So they have quite a large reach. So, you know, I think this is an example of if they can really make that shift, how do we fan the flames of companies like this? Right, right. So the consumers, you know, then they have a choice, and they make a wiser choice. Mm-hmm. And so some of that then requires us as individuals to take a stand, and I think sometimes people get overwhelmed with the idea of taking a stand because how do you stand up to a company like in the in the U.S. Pacific Gas and Electric, or um, you know the 
the company like China Light and Power? How do you stand up to them? But what I hear you saying earlier in the show is that, um, you know, it comes down to your neighborhood. It comes down to yourself. It comes down to really taking a close look at what's the one little thing I can do. Exactly, and that goes back to we do. We have choices every day. And if you just look at your home, more and more communities have power companies that draw completely from renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And while it may seem like it might cost more in the beginning, in the end, well, not even in the end, mm-hmm. but very shortly, it is the wiser choice. And if we support these types of companies that have made the shift over time, the economies of scale will begin to weigh in. Mm-hmm. And so we all have a part, and we may look at it as, you know, what difference can I really make as an individual? Well, you as an individual, you have friends, you have networks. And so what role do you want to play? Do you want to be a passive, you know, I'll, I'll just accept my fate, I can't do anything, mm-hmm. or I'll follow the leader and hope that that's good enough, or I'll take a stand and see if I can bring my friends along. So we all do play a part, and it does have to start with the individual. Mm. You know, sometimes in a huge societal shifts, there are pivotal moments, and some people are saying that this most recent event with BP, British Petroleum, where the oil spill um, in the Gulf is so dramatically huge. They're having such a problem with shutting it down, with cleaning it up, um, that this might be one of those pivotal moments in history where a huge shift in mindset actually occurs. What is your thinking about this? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they're now looking at this as the greatest environmental disaster, catastrophe, even eclipsing Chernobyl. Mm. And we're not finished yet. Mm. So the fact that we have poked a hole in the earth and the earth is literally bleeding, um, you know, I think this could be one of those seven-generation events. Mm. And going back to something I mentioned earlier Uh, One of the climate scientists that traveled with us to the Antarctic last year, uh, Norm Miller, who's at the University of California at Berkeley, he pointed out that we're we're starting to draw all these connections between climate change, sea level rise, the increased weight on the ocean floor, the preponderance of pretty catastrophic earthquakes – in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those system dynamics events. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, um, again, the climate scenarios that have been created over the past couple of decades, right now we're on a business-as-usual scenario, mm-hmm. which will put us at just under a 1,000 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere by the year 2100. And we're at 387 right now. The low carbon emission path is closer to 350 or 400. And the steps that we'll have to take to get there are nothing short of, um, well, a complete sea change. And the point that I want to make there is Norm Miller, 
says that if you look at how these different scenarios begin to bifurcate significantly, mm-hmm. it's in the year 2020. So this decade between 2010 and 2020 is when we really need to make a difference. And to get back to you know, the significance of the BP oil catastrophe, he said what we need to wake up the world is one, I'll rephrase what he said, one major flood. And I think this is one of those major floods, a shock to the system that if this doesn't wake us up, um, you know, we really need to look at the viability of our future as a, as a species. As a species. Wow. You know, um, I have heard for years um, people say we have, to, we have to save the earth, and um, then I've heard smarter people say, <clears throat> well, no, actually, we have to save ourselves. The earth will be fine because the planet will still be here. It may not be able to sustain us, but it will be here in some form or another. So really what we're talking about is um, saving the species. Absolutely. And in the history of um, life on this planet, they estimate, scientists estimate that between 95 and 98.8% of all species are now extinct. Mm. So you think about it, you know, the human population, we've been around for a relatively short period of time. Will we thrive? Will we survive? Mm-hmm. Or will we go extinct? Mm-hmm. And I think what we have in our favor is our ability to innovate and to collaborate our way out of this. Technology will be part of it, but the choices we make, you know, our consumption, our lifestyle patterns, um, those choices will determine, you know, our future. Because the Earth will survive. I mean, they've looked at, you know, how areas come back, how rapidly they come back after catastrophic volcanoes, et cetera. So the Earth will survive. And with that, we're going to close the show. Darcy, it's been great, again, having you here on Leading Conversations. And you're always welcome to come and share with us your experiences and your perspective because it certainly makes us think in a bigger way. Thanks for being here, Darcy. Well, thank you. Now, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way? My website is dswcollective.com. And I would say, you know, as a closing point, remember you always have choices, but you have to own that choice. Hmm. So remember, everyone, think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.